This is Wealth Curve Talk with John L. Smallwood, certified financial planner and president of Smallwood Wealth Management. With more than 30 years of experience in helping people with wealth management, financial planning, business ownership, estate planning, insurance, and more, John's here to share the news you can use to improve your financial confidence. Now, best-selling author and six-time five-star wealth manager award winner, John L. Smallwood. Hello, this is John Smallwood welcoming you today. As always, we want to address the issues that are impacting your bottom line, the pressure, as I like to call it, or the financial pressure that is going to either increase the value of your wealth or decrease the value of your wealth or impact on your ability to enjoy your wealth through spending, right? Recently, we had an infrastructure bill that was passed and that's going to be coming out now. You know, it's live. It's passed with both the House and the Senate, and it appears that it's going to move forward. It's a $1.2 trillion infrastructure package. And what I want to think about today is I want to think about, as with any bill, there's great things in it. And there are things that we should go, well, how's that really going to impact us? What's it going to do? How will it affect me in my personal financial plan? Is it going to benefit from me or is it going to take away? For me, And I think that's the question that everybody always wants to really understand is these things, we throw around numbers that are massive as if they're, you know, afternoon funds, right? But they're really, I mean, this is some pretty significant money. And from what I can gather in the bill and in the conversations I've had over the weekend, there's no really clear cut methodology in how this bill is paid for. A large majority of the payment is from adding to the deficit. So we're increasing our debt in order to achieve this. There are some macro pictures, you know, in this that you could see certain things happening as a result of it increased taxes in certain areas, not just, I don't say from, you know, increasing rate, but I'm saying that from increasing revenues of in increasing wage base, which would lead to more taxes, which is another way that you pay for it. But what I wanted to think about is, I wanted to kind of go through this quickly because there's interesting things that I think are going to be very beneficial, but also potentially hazardous to what we're doing, right? So when you talk about the bill, and you talk about what's in it there obviously it's very hard to get a you know a accurate really what's in the bill but there's a hundred billion dollars out of the 1.2 trillion that's going to be allocated for roads and bridges in major infrastructure projects so what does that mean right so we know that our highways we know that our bridges are in trouble so that's going to lead to a tremendous amount of contracting work that will take place on the roads, which in order to do that, you're using commodities, you're using natural resources, you're increasing the fuel consumption for the trucks and everybody that's building and you need more trucks. If you're a contractor, you need more trucks. You know, there's a whole series of things that are going to be rippling just through that one aspect of this, right? So my initial takeaway was I like the idea of roads and bridges because we live in New Jersey, we have way too many people. 
Um, our roads are probably the worst roads out there as far as potholes and bumps and etc. Um, really not maintained, but it's exciting to see that, hey, we could have some nice roads. But if we put that into play, my question is, will it drive up the cost of all the commodities and natural resources in order to build a road and to build a car and to do all those things? And that's what I start to look at is that's going to increase, especially if we're decreasing supply on oil and gas and other related things, how are we, how is this really gonna impact us, right? So I have concern there. 40 billion for bridge repair, replacement and rehabilitation, which same kind of conversation is, in my mind, the bridges and the roads are really the same thing, but it's specifically to go help some of these bridges that are in pretty dire straits. I mean, we live here in Monmouth County, there's probably six or seven bridges locally that are in really dire straits that it should have been, you know, fixed 20 years ago, if not, you know, 10. But that is a good thing. But again, it's going to be heavy on natural resources. This is something that I thought was really funny. The deal also contains 16 billion for major projects that would be too large or complex for traditional funding programs. What the heck is that? Where is that money going? <laughs> Seriously. Um, so then there's 11 billion for transportation safety. So including a program to help states and localities reduce crashes and fatalities, especially of cyclists and pedestrians, according to the White House. It would be direct funding for safety efforts involving highways, trucks, and pipeline and hazardous materials. That sounds like a lot of technology. That sounds like a lot of, you know, it's very vague in how they're going to accomplish this. But I would believe that when we're increasing, we're spending $110 billion on roads and bridges and infrastructure projects, that that's actually increasing transportation safety also. So it would be interesting to see how they're going to dovetail together. But in that, in that arena, for companies that are focused on technology and you know self-driving cars and things like that, there could be significant increases into things like that, right? So I think that's exciting from that perspective. In the bill, there's also a billion dollars to reconnect communities, mainly disproportionately black neighborhoods that were divided by highways and other infrastructure, according to the White House. It will fund planning, design, demolition, and reconstruction of street grids and parks and other infrastructure, which is a massive undertaking in itself. A billion dollars almost doesn't seem to be that way. As you drive up and down the East Coast, you could see how towns and cities and sections and regions are cut off from the rest of the, you know, from their major infrastructure areas. Very interesting. I think there actually needs to be a bigger plan as to how that actually happens, but it's an interesting perspective. Uh, again, more construction, more materials, and a little bit more ambiguity as to how that's really accomplished. Um, there's $39 billion to modernize the public transit system which is very interesting to me because that's going to the rail and the bus fleets. And one of the things that they're talking about is replacing thousands of vehicles with zero emission models 
that's what they would be putting in play. And then there's 66 billion in the passenger and freight rail. So you have 39 billion in modernizing public transit, which you know everybody always says that our transit system, our train system is one of the, you know, it's archaic compared to Europe and Japan and other related areas. But interesting that there's a significant amount of money going into the infrastructure to build out these areas. And I know there's been a lot of projects in the big cities to get more and more people into the big cities, which is different than what you think about when you have COVID, right? When COVID restrictions, nobody wants to be in the big cities, but now we're going to improve public transportation so we can get more in there. And when everybody's fleeing the cities, just having fun with that. But the reality is we need to think about that from a from a perspective of if we're improving our public transportation and we're improving our buses, we're improving our trains, we're our freight trains, that's going to allow a lot of products to be moving through those areas, creating opportunities for investment, creating opportunities for businesses, creating opportunities to be thinking about how do we capitalize on the modernization of public transit? And hopefully there'll be some really interesting improvements to mass transportation. I mean, getting from Monmouth County into Manhattan, you know, you have a ferry, you have a train, you have the buses, and they all take a long time. If you could come up with something that would allow people to get into the cities quicker and faster and more efficiently, um, should bring a lot of opportunity to the cities in itself. As we dig into this deeper, there's also upgrading to airports, ports, and waterways, 17 billion in port infrastructure, 25 billion in airports. So if you've flown in and out of the New York area recently, it seems like for the last 20 years, every airport has been under major, major construction. I can't imagine more of that here, but there's significant, as we know, we have a supply issue. The ports can't handle the amount of load that's coming in. They don't have enough people. So all this stuff, one of my biggest concerns as I start to think about everything is so focused on the infrastructure, our unemployment is down, supposedly down about 4.6%, uh, which means a lot of people have come off the workforce more than finding jobs because there's still so many jobs available out there. How are we going to get people to work in these categories? How are we going to get people to, to show up, to be participating in this? And if you're making this mass transportation, you're typically making mass transportation to have the workforce get into their offices cleaner, more efficiently, more effectively with less waste and less time. After COVID, most people that I talk to are preferring driving because it's faster, quicker, better um, at this point. But so you, you start to think about you got that 17 billion. Now, electric vehicles, seven and a half billion for zero and low emission buses and ferries. So, as you're improving in this first section, we had the area where they're increasing in an earlier bill, they had money for increasing buses and trains, et cetera in the section of the bill. Now, here's another section where there's actually seven and a half billion again for low emission buses and ferries, which is a wonderful part of getting people in and out of cities. 
Another seven and a half billion would go to the nationwide network of plug-in electrical vehicle chargers. And I think this is kind of where I get to a point where the, how's that going to be deployed? Who's benefiting from that? Um, where's the energy coming from to fire that's, you know, all these different places up? What's the impact on the economy? What's the impact on on our world, but who's benefiting from that? And how many people are really driving around in electric vehicles? And when you think back about how the infrastructure was built before, how the gas stations were laid out, they were very entrepreneurial, uh, started off as small operators. As I understand, there wasn't a lot of government funding to fund those. They were done through you know, companies expanding and growing and wanting to distribute more and more of their oil and gas around the country. So it would be interesting to see how that's going to take place and what the thinking is and how that money is going to be dispersed. The bill would also invest, and this is something I think is really important, in the power and the water systems that we have. Uh, you know, $65 billion to rebuild the electrical grid is part of what we're seeing. And I think that's one of the biggest areas is the reliability of power. Um, but again, what's firing that additional power? What kind of drain is that putting on? And then from a water perspective, you know, the cleanliness of water is super important. And it provides $55 billion to upgrade the water infrastructure. Interesting to see how that's going to play. So there's a lot of really interesting ways to improve the quality of water, the distribution of water, how it gets through. We, we know the Colorado River feeds a majority of, you know, West Coast and how they're going to rectify that. Are they going to use desalination plants? You know, what is the focus and how will the money be put out there? But again, if these things are deployed into the economy, the amount of capital that's going out and the amount of, you know, impact on natural resources, the impact on uh, oil and gas uh, on cars, demand for trucks, demand for tires, demand for uh, everything that's basically associated with construction is heavy, heavy, heavy equipment. So pretty darn exciting there. The question is, how are we going to pay for this? What's it going to do from an inflationary standpoint? How are we going to approach this as a country without having a direct source of funding. I know this was originally presented from the perspective of funding would take place in the 3.6 trillion Build Back America plan, which, you know, we've been talking about these for six or eight months now. Um, we know taxes are coming. We know increased taxes are coming. But I think what I'm seeing here is why this bill is got some very interesting improvements that will be made to our economy, to our system. The payment of it is going to be really interesting and in how it's going to get paid and where the money will come from and how the money will be dispersed and how you're going to benefit from it. That's really going to interest me. But I, I would hang on because I think inflation is going to the things that we're buying are going to go up. The natural resources that we are acquiring, such as, you know, natural gas to heat our homes, car, you know, gas to put in our cars, 
and a whole bunch of other things will really impact you. And it'll impact your ability to get access to certain things because there'll be a restriction of, not a restriction, but there'll be a short supply of the commodity. So in this, I want to kind of wrap this up and think about it is that assuming that this goes in, the deficit's going to go up, the tax rate or the tax base may improve, which may offset some of that. Commodities will become more expensive as a result of this. And especially if you're doing bridges and railroads and roads and tunnels and you know all these things at the same time, we don't have enough natural resources, I think, in a supply chain to go after these things um, and, and to really get this accomplished without having a significant impact on the inflation, which as inflation goes up, we are having, you know, my conversation with a lot of my clients is it's really expensive to go out to dinner. It's really expensive to go to the food storage. You know, things that were thought of as basic necessities have now become significantly more expensive. And that's really the when you're building the financial strategy and you're sitting with your spreadsheet and you're thinking about hey, I need this $100,000 a year, a hypothetical example, in retirement, I'm gonna get a, you know, maybe 30, 40,000 of that from Social Security that hopefully has some sort of inflationary aspect, but where's the rest of the money coming from? And how am I gonna get that inflationary hedge out of the rest of the assets if I need to, you know, be taking the majority of the income from those other assets without having anything that is being deferred or most people, when they hit retirement, they need to take income from all of their sources, right? It's not most people, most people do not have the liberty to say, well, out of my million dollar portfolio, I only need to take a one or 2% withdrawal because I have other income sources and my lifestyle is not there. In my 30 plus years of doing that, most people need to take four, five, 6% off that money in order to meet their daily living obligations that they've set up without significantly changing. And that's one of the biggest parts about retirement planning is how do you modify back into this? And if I have high inflation, assuming I have $100,000 worth of goods to buy this year with my goods and I have a four or 5% inflation, out of the gate, if I don't have 105 next year, I'm going backwards, right? Because my 100 is only gonna spend like 95,000. So food for thought, more to come on this, um, time will tell. Um, but my initial reaction is hang on to your pocketbooks because inflation is coming at you again. Again, if you want to take advantage of the offers that we have available on the website, if you're a new client or a new potential client, you could set up a no obligation wealth curve conversation call. It's a 30 to 40 minute call. We're going to walk you through a bunch of questions. You can ask us questions and the idea is to really get to know each other to see if we are going to be a good fit for you and your family. You're listening to the podcast, so the podcast is here. Please subscribe to it. There's also webinars that are going on. Um, we, we, I wrote a book. Um, it's called It's Your Wealth, Keep It, which is available. You can go to the website, request a copy, or it brings you right to the Amazon link where you can purchase one. Um, but again, these are things that are available and resources for you to consume and the idea is that we want to get into your thinking because we want you to think through some of the financial decisions that you're making and understand the pros and cons of those but more importantly ultimately when you're putting together a financial strategy what you want to do is you want to focus on reducing risk reducing taxes reducing fees and costs increasing the savings rate 
decreasing the withdrawal rate if you can, putting more benefits and more protection around that wealth, and ultimately passing more wealth to your family. Most financial strategies do the exact opposite. They increase taxes, they increase fees, they increase costs, they increase risk. They have less money in retirement, they pass less to their families. So we want to do the opposite of that. Thank you. It's your wealth. Keep it. The best-selling book by John L. Smallwood. The definitive guide to growing, protecting, enjoying, and passing on your wealth. Find it on Amazon now or go to smallwoodwealth.com for more retirement resources. Wealth Curve Talk with John L. Smallwood is brought to you by Smallwood Wealth Management, an investment advisor representative. Strategies mentioned may not be suitable for everyone, and the information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for you. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action as information and or opinion are subject to change without notice. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Past performance cannot be used as an indicator to determine future results. Smallwood Wealth Management provides content that is true and accurate as of the date of publishing. However, we give no assurance or warranty regarding the accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this website or podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, misleading, or defamatory statements.